1: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, where the day is Friday, December 4th, 2020. And here in Buffalo, New York, winter is not on its way. It has arrived. We are surrounded by Great Lakes on two sides. But we've got a lot to talk about today. Impact Wrestling, suddenly, at the top of everyone's mind. Does a relationship with AEW and Impact Wrestling make sense? What's more valuable at this point in the wrestling media ecosystem? One episode of a weekly television show or a pay-per-view event? And another month of wrestling television viewership? has come and gone as 2020 is almost over. All that and more, but first. Mm -hmm. AEW Dynamite on Wednesday for its heavily hyped Winter is Coming episode was viewed live or same day by 913,000 viewers in the U.S., the largest total audience for Dynamite since September 9th a night when AEW was not opposed head-to-head by NXT due to preemptions. In the key demo, Dynamite did a .42 rating, equivalent to an audience of 543,000 viewers between the ages of 18 and 49. To find a key demo audience that large for AEW Dynamite, you have to go all the way back to November 13, not 2020, November 13th, 2019, episode number 7. Of AEW Dynamite. On Wednesday, on cable, AEW ranked number two, just behind or perhaps tied with a college basketball game that was airing on ESPN. That did an equal demo rating, at least down to the second decimal place. Uh, WWE NXT, of course, running head to head, ranked number 40 on the night with a total audience of 658,000 viewers and a key demo audience, just over one third the size of AEW's key demo audience. For listeners just joining us, why do we focus on key demo audience? Key demo audience is the demographic 18 to 49. These are thought to be the consumers who are most susceptible to advertising. These are people who are of adult age, who perhaps have disposable income, and who are not yet at the key age of 50, at which point you become brand loyal. Uh, That is the idea. And it tells us something about maybe what the future of television is going to be. But certainly all viewers, the total audience, is supporting some sort of TV subscription. In the quarter hours, the audience peaked at the 7th quarter, the time between 9.30pm Eastern and 9.45pm, a quarter that entirely consisted of the main event match match between Kenny Omega and Jon Moxley. So we're going to try something different this week. For all of the supporters and subscribers at patreon.com slash You will be getting access to, it, and you have access to right now, as you listen to this, a, a yet-to-be-branded document that basically contains a lot of the research that I've done this week. Uh, and it contains many graphs and tables and visual aids and notes and things of that nature, which will be referenced uh, on the podcast today. So I've been reflecting, and sometimes here on the program, I will... Uh, recite a series of numbers so i think that doesn't make for the greatest audio so i'm going to try to do i will be saying numbers here and there but to speak more in terms of proportions and percentages i think i think when you hear a bunch of numbers in a podcast it just kind of goes through one ear and out the other at least in my experience and without seeing that stuff visually it's hard so all of the numbers the charts the graphs will be in this let's call it for this week the Notebook. Patrons at patreon.com slash will have access to the WrestleNomics notebook, which hopefully will serve as a fantastic visual aid to this podcast. So in the notebook this week will be information related to everything that I'm going to talk about here in this hour, as well as stuff that I'm probably not going to have time to get to. But let's consider first the question I've been uh, uh, provoked into thought on the question of whether AEW is going to grow its viewership. The question about, well, you know, they did 913,000 viewers, a high number, uh, not over a million, uh, very hyped episode of Dynamite. You know, it did well, but when when is AEW really going to grow its audience? On this very podcast network, the Voices of Wrestling flagship had a discussion about this. But here, as we sit here today, I think, you know, it's December 2020, and the big main event that we are on a long runway going toward is the middle or the spring and, and winter of 2023. Now, just over two years away. That's when WB and perhaps AEW as well will be renegotiating their next set of US TV deals. And who gets a great deal and who gets an okay deal, or maybe even who gets a disappointing deal, will depend greatly on on the lay of the land, and I think the, the trends and the, and the comparability in the viewership between WWE programs and AEW programs. In the recently completed month of November, Raw is still more than doubling AEW's total audience. SmackDown is almost tripling AEW's total audience. While AEW is destroying NXT in the demo, NXT sometimes still ties AEW in total audience. It did just uh, last week. In the key demo, though, things are closer. Uh, AEW is doing uh, a little more than half in between the ages of 18 to 49 than what Raw and SmackDown are doing. That's in the month of November. On a week like this, though, with this heavily hyped episode of Dynamite, AEW is just 20% short of what Raw did in the key demo this week. AEW did 543,000 viewers in the key demo. Raw did 680. So again, 543 to 680. Then SmackDown did 779. Now that margin will probably be lower next week. But just to give you an idea of of an exceptional week like this week. But if we look at even younger demographics, and if you look in the notebook under the viewership update heading, you'll see the data I'm referring to. In the younger demographics, in the 18 to 34, the young adult demographic, young adults have made up less and less of the Raw and SmackDown audience over time. Right now for Raw and SmackDown, young adults are just, just over 10% of the audience, of the TV viewership audience for Raw and SmackDown, just over 10%. Now that, that may be the case throughout TV, that younger audiences are not watching TV as much. I expect that's the case, but if we compare what's happening there, that trend, in the cases of, of WWE, where young audiences are watching Raw SmackDown in a less and less proportion, and by the way, it's, it's the same thing in terms of a percentage of the audience for NXT, that young adult audience getting smaller and smaller by proportion, but in the case of AEW, it's, it's a minority of the audience as well, but it's, con, it's a consistently larger percentage. In the case of AEW, it's well over 15%. And we'll see what happens as, as the months go on here. But it seems to be trending maybe a little bit upward in recent months. Those first couple months of, of AEW Dynamite back in 2019, it was very high, over 20%. But in the last six months, that young adult audience for AEW Dynamite has been decisively higher than for any of the three major WWE programs. Why does this matter? Extrapolate this out two years from now, when we're getting to the end of 2022 when TV rights negotiations in the U.S. are starting up again for the big wrestling shows. At least they will be for Raw and SmackDown, maybe AEW, too, depending on whether Warner Media picks up its one-year option. But to be highly speculative, and to go back to our earlier uh, subject that I raised about, you know, when is AEW viewership going to grow? When When is AEW going to capture new fans or lapsed fans? When are they going to grow this audience to over one million? When are they going to engage, I think, what Wade Keller calls... The second million. And I, th- I think what we're going to see is over the next two years and further on into the future probably, I don't, I don't think we're as likely to see AEW grow its audience. I think what we're likely to see is Raw and SmackDown, probably NXT two, Their audiences continue to decline as they have for the last several years. And we're likely to see AEW's audience sustain better. What we're going to see over the next few years, I think, is the continued attrition, the continued shedding of viewers, which is in line with what television overall, especially when you exclude the big cable news networks, television overall is in decline. People's behaviors are changing in how they consume media and wrestling viewers are going to continue to shed away from live same day linear viewing of wrestling programs And what we're likely to see is, are the numbers for Raw, SmackDown, NXT, they will get smaller and smaller, and AEWs will probably sustain, stay the same, or decline at a lower rate. So not decline as aggressively. That's my prediction over the next few years. WWE will continue to be directed by the the creative genius of Vince McMahon, and overall popularity in WWE brands will continue to decline. Viewership will continue to decline, at least at the rate, perhaps below the rate of TV trends overall. And I think it most likely within the next two or three years, AEW will not catch lightning in a bottle and become mega popular and create a new star that sets the business on fire, but that they'll continue to produce a good, good enough product for the audience that they have and will do a better job holding on to viewers than WWE will. And as I've said before, my belief, as we sit here today, subject to change, is that WWE will get a a decent increase in their TV rights deal to go into effect in late 2024, and that AEW will get an upgrade that is at a larger percentage, but probably at a lower value total compared to WWE, which is producing now seven uh, weekly primetime hours of wrestling content compared to AEW, probably only producing three. And that we will have on our hands an even more competitive wrestling landscape with a sort of, you know, we're, we will then be locked into a, a future with two pretty strong major wrestling companies. So again, I, I feel that people are looking for growth when the landscape is on a decline. And what we will see, I think, is the margin between WWE and AEW continue to get smaller as time goes on, with neither necessarily growing their numbers, and continue to watch what's happening in the eighteen to thirty-four, not not just forty-nine, but eighteen to thirty-four demographic. I know everybody's like obsessed with demographics all of a sudden, but. That 18 to 34 demographic may be forecasting what the future of wrestling is going to be and what the future of wrestling TV viewership is going to be. What's been happening in that young adult demographic recently? As you can see in the notebook, since COVID for Raw and SmackDown, that 18 to 34 demographic has like fallen in half for Raw and SmackDown. It dipped a little bit for AEW through the summer, but it's climbed back up to the pre-COVID level now since fall. But that young adult demographic for Raw and SmackDown has not recovered. It's a flat line. Similar trend on a smaller scale for NXT. But again, AEW grew in the young adult demographic through the summer following the dip in the spring and has closed, not, not closed, but has narrowed the gap. And what WWE has got to be asking itself is, why does it have this problem with younger viewers that AEW doesn't have the same problem with on its smaller scale why is a w more able to capture this young adult audience and wb is less able to capture this young adult audience relative to the overall size of its tv audience they should be asking themselves that question and investors and analysts should be asking wb that question but unfortunately this is one of the questions that comes down to the creative direction of the company in wb which is controlled by the chairman the ceo the Class B controlling shareholder. And the head of creative for WB is not going to change in Vince's lifetime. And, Anyone who doesn't want to watch World Wrestling Federation Entertainment just turns it off. How easy is that? It, it is pretty easy. Be that as it may. And then from there, uh, Sting debuted this week on, on AW Dynamite, but also there was an apparent beginning, maybe short-lived, maybe long-term, who knows, Some sort of interaction, relationship between All Elite Wrestling and Impact Wrestling has begun. Kenny Omega is now advertised to appear on Impact Wrestling this coming Tuesday night. In the notebook, you can see a giant graph depicting the entire history uh, for the viewership of Impact Wrestling as I know it today. As of September 2020, going all the way back to the debut of the program uh, on Spike in 2005. But Impact right now on Access, Access, a channel that about half of the cable homes have, something like 40 million homes when TNT and USA are in somewhere around 80 million homes. But Impact, a program that's doing well under 200,000 viewers on average per week. I don't know like what the median age is of the uh, the median impact viewer, but if the demographics are any indication... I would guess that Impact has an even older viewer than any of the WWE programs. Key Demo makes up about a quarter of the Impact audience. A quarter, compare that to about a third uh, of the WWE audience is in the Key Demo on any of its programs. And about half of the audience for AEW is in the Key Demo. So again, about a quarter of the audience for Impact is Key Demo, about a third for WWE, and about half for AEW. Now let's be fair, it, it could just be that that l- huge portion, that 75% of the audience for Impact that is not in the key demo, they could just be largely under the age of 18. With the data on hand, we cannot rule out the possibility that, that teenagers and preteens around the United States are lining up in front of their access TV linear television on uh, Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock. And consuming Impact Wrestling. We cannot rule that out, but I would be surprised. And it seems far more likely that the vast majority of the Impact Wrestling audience is over the age of 50. And by the way, if we would dwell on that for a moment, this, this P50 plus audience, which just doesn't square with my uh, reality of, of, of interacting and seeing wrestling fans talk to each other, which I guess is you know, largely online, especially these days. And surely younger viewers are following and watching in in other ways other than live same-day TV viewing directly through their MVPD or virtual MVPD, which is fancy jargon for cable or satellite. But it just doesn't square with my experience that there's, even if there's this huge population of younger wrestling fans who are just not consuming it in the old traditional way, it just doesn't square with my experience that there is this Nonetheless, this apparent large audience of wrestling viewers over the age of 50, because that certainly doesn't look to be the sort of person that attends live events, for one thing. But anyway, AEW working with Impact seems like a high risk and low return for AEW. Again, a great deal for Impact. You definitely want to do this if you're Impact, if you're Don Callis, and maybe as well if you're you're Don Callis' friend. Uh, Impact has been rehabbed from toxicity in these recent years, but it's still, oh, what does that smell? Oh, that's the lingering stink of TNA. Now, in, in fairness, uh, Impact has a, a really strong women's roster, an area where AEW is lacking. If this goes that far, AEW would benefit from featuring some of uh, the female wrestlers with Impact. But beyond that, the the best pitch that I can think of in terms of how this could play out in a way that is really good for everybody involved, or at least for AEW, is that maybe Impact invades Dynamite and maybe it, it gets good heat. With Impact, it could be easily positioned as a heel brand to an AEW audience. It would help if there were a lot of live fans in attendance. There are some, to some extent, at AEW, distanced. But maybe it's executed well and this leads to Something like a Kenny Omega-led Impact team against a, I don't know, Moxley or Adam Page-led AEW team in a Blood and Guts War Games match. Maybe that's on pay-per-view. Maybe the AEW team goes over and that heats up a challenger for Kenny Omega. But really, this feels like something that uh, was pushed for heavily, maybe by Kenny himself, to do something with his friend Don Callis. Uh, but this really depends on how well it is executed. You can see it as well as AEW talent interacting with uh, talent from a company that has a lower profile than AEW. You can see maybe the, the angles and the uh, interactions not going so well, not being executed well, and sort of reinforcing a more minor league perception of AEW. think like It largely depends on the, on the quality of the angles and of the matches that happen as a result that seems like a large wager to make relative to what AEW stands to gain. And here I think we're seeing some of the, the central problems that AEW faces, challenges, if you prefer. Um, there's an original sin, I guess, to the founding, the launching of AEW in that to get the key talent to sign on, one of the main components to getting them that is uh, Kenny Omega, Young Bucks, Cody, Brandy, to sign on, is that they, despite having tremendous success with the all-in event, they had little experience, if any, uh, being leaders of a large company. And they've been granted, apparently, a great deal of creative freedom. It it really kind of makes me think that it's going to take another generation of AW talent maybe for AEW to really reach its larger possible heights. The generation that comes after the EVP generation, if you will. a, A later generation of top stars who do not have the power to book themselves in ways that do not necessarily maximize their economic effect. And I think this goes for Jericho, too, who seems to have a great deal of creative freedom. But in the case of the Mimosa match and Le Dinner Debonair seems to prioritize amusement that might get people talking ahead of emotion that might get people paying. Or the Young Bucks, who certainly were effective at presenting themselves as stars in someone else's company, but have so far been less effective at enhancing their own star power in a company where they have far more creative control. And I'm of the view that Cody has done by far the best job of booking himself among the EVPs, but we've seen how nepotism has played out in, in many ways uh, in the early run here of AEW, with many friends being hired, although some not. Someone like Zack Ryder only got a short-term deal. But Friends Championship Wrestling is probably a factor in allowing Brandy Rhodes to be the chief brand officer and to get as much screen time as she has had in the earlier days of Dynamite, at least. You know, I, I think of that uh, quote that I think is attributed to Abraham Lincoln and uh, maybe it wasn't really him who said it but nonetheless it's something along the lines of you know put a person in a situation where they're up against adversity and anyone can show courage in a situation like that but if you really want to see what somebody's made of give them some power more WrestleNomics after this Mm -hmm.
1: And the reason I want to put big matches on Dynamite is because Dynamite is the flagship product, the flagship revenue stream of AEW. It's the lifeblood of AEW. And there wouldn't be an AEW without Dynamite. Uh, And uh, I want people to feel like Wednesday nights, they're going to get huge matches and that really... the. When the revenue model in wrestling changed, what made me get into the wrestling business, the reason I started AEW was when the the revenue model of wrestling changed. I've always loved wrestling. My dream was to start a wrestling company, but I'm also not a sucker, and I'm not going to put a ton of money into a, a bottomless pit. But when the revenue stream for television weekly wrestling became so large, potentially, uh, when I saw the TV contracts that were going to be coming out, it, you know, uh, it was 2018, and I was saw what was uh, what was ahead for uh, TV contracts, and it was hundreds of millions of dollars potentially. And now we've signed a 175 million dollar four year contract, and you know that's that that was the business plan of this company was to get that contract, build the relationship we have with TNT, and put on huge main events and huge shows.
0: That's AEW President Tony Khan talking to the media on a conference call that happened on Tuesday talking about the value of Dynamite to the company. $175 million over four years. He did tweet that back in June coming out. to An average annual value of about $44 million per year. And it raises the question. It doesn't beg the question. That would be something different. But it raises the question. At this point in wrestling history, with the media circumstances that we have on hand now at the highest level uh, for wrestling companies that are able to get big deals to be on cable or broadcast TV, it raises the question about where do you put big matches, on TV or on pay-per-view, or in WWE's case, on your subscription streaming platform. As we've talked about before, the old model has been turned upside down where before you didn't want to give away huge matches on TV. In fact, in another era, your TV probably wasn't even recorded at a major sports venue. It was probably recorded at a television studio in front of maybe 100 people. And that television program was a vehicle for selling tickets. And how funny would it be to tell the old promoters of the old territory days that here we stand in the year 2020, barely selling any tickets. AEW is selling A few hundred every Wednesday. Sold under a thousand for their latest pay-per-view. WWE selling none since March. We're entering our ninth consecutive month with no event in the United States that has drawn more than 1,000 paying customers. Yet, WWE is going to generate a billion dollars in revenue this year. Or very, very close to a one billion. AEW generating, I would guess... More than $50 million, but maybe less than $100 million for its year of 2020. WWE never been more profitable than it is right now. No tickets sold for nine consecutive months. And who knows when they'll sell their next ticket. So with that said, where do the big matches go? This is kind of something that George Barrows used to talk about. Uh, not He didn't phrase it in terms of matches, but phrase it in terms of content you know you got some content that goes in the linear pillar he probably talked about pillars you got some some content that goes in the linear pillar you got that that's regular pay tv you got some content that goes in the streaming pillar that's the w network and you got some content that goes to youtube and he would make it sound like this was all completely separate content but there's some overlap but anyway The old model, you'd promote your matches on TV and then blow it off on the pay-per-view and your pay-per-view was far more lucrative than your TV show. So are we still in a situation today where pay-per-view is more lucrative than a TV show? Does AEW generate more revenue on a pay-per-view or on one episode of Dynamite? Does WWE generate more revenue or more operating income or profitability on one of its network-exclusive pay-per-view events? Or on one episode of Raw SmackDown. So I'll get to the point. If, if you look at the top of the WrestleNomics notebook this week, I've got my answer uh, in terms of a rough estimate. I think AEW still makes quite a bit more money running a pay-per-view than it does running one Dynamite. But WWE, not the case. Since their current round of TV rights contracts began, it now looks to me like WWE... Even when we're generous, the WWE calculation is, is very complicated. Maybe I'll get into it a little bit. But even if we're generous to the idea that the pay-per-views are adding the vast majority of the value to the WWE Network, I think a single Raw and probably a single SmackDown is more profitable to WWE than a pay-per-view event is. One Raw, not, not, not a month's Raw, not a month's SmackDown, one Raw, Probably one Smackdown generating more operating income. This is a fancy word for profit. Generating more operating income than one pay-per-view. I'm able to dig into profitability with WWE because they're a publicly traded company and we have a lot of their financial details. In the case of AEW, it's an easier calculation because pay-per-view events are sold very specifically. They're not part of a streaming service. And I think the expense related to a pay-per-view event is substantially more than one episode of Dynamite, but the amount of revenue I come up with uh, is, is far exceeding that of one Dynamite to the extent that I, I can't imagine that the expense is so much more for a pay-per-view versus a TV taping so that it is leading to equal or less profitability. Again, you can see this detailed in the notebook for subscribers at patreon.com slash for an average pay-per-view for AEW, let's say 90,000 worldwide buys. This is just a rough estimate to try to answer the question. What's more valuable, TV or pay-per-view? I think they're making somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.7 million in revenue. Just for the media, not, not for the tickets. I'm not trying to count for ticket sales in any of this. But somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.7, $1.5 million in net revenue, after the split with the, the carrier of the pay-per-view, or I should say carriers, there are many worldwide. And I think the revenue related to one dynamite is somewhere just under a million dollars. So hundreds of thousands of, of dollars difference greater in the case of a pay-per-view. I don't think there's uh, expenses to that extent that are offsetting these two types of events to make the profitability, similar. I think the profitability...
2: In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing slab packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value Off. Again, that's arena club.com slash VOW net, arena club.com slash VOW for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of the Wrestling Podcast Network.
0: Down a pay per view event is higher as well as the revenue being higher. So even though AEW did its uh, AEW Dynamite Special Edition episode, called Winter is Coming, with a big title match in the main event, I think they are still generating more revenue when they run a pay-per-view. And now, that's not a criticism of, of this decision. I'm not saying they should have put uh, a show of this caliber on pay-per-view rather than TV. Uh, I get the idea of trying to promote a really strong episode of Dynamite when the value of TV is so near the value of of the value of one TV show being so near the value of one pay-per-view. And by the way, if you're only going to do four pay-per-views in a year, or even if you did, you know, eight for 12, you're still not approaching the annual value of even AEW's U S TV deal, which we know to be, you know, $44 million over the four year lifetime of the contract. So probably I would guess in the high thirties, high $30 million for 2020, you know, even if you were doing a, 12 pay-per-views at an average uh, net revenue of $1.7 million, that only comes to about $20 million. So even in the case of AEW, the value of their television deal is far greater than the annual value of what they're going to generate on pay-per-view. So I, I, I understand building up a few really big episodes of your weekly TV show. Now, we've seen NXT do things like this with the Halloween Havoc special episode of NXT. Uh, In the case of Raw or SmackDown, there have been, you know, the the reunion and anniversary episodes of Raw and SmackDown, but we don't really see anything like this yet anyway in the case of Raw and SmackDown. And those programs do have, you know, 12 peak events or pay-per-view events or network shows. I don't even know what to call them anymore, but they do have those 12 peak events to build to. Uh, one a month. And historically for WWE, pay-per-view used to be more valuable than one episode of TV, by my estimation. Pay-per-view used to be multiples, multiple times more valuable, more profitable, one pay-per-view versus one major TV taping. Go back to 2007, where I think the profitability of one pay-per-view was some, somewhere in the neighborhood of $3.5 million, compared to maybe half a million dollars. For one raw and the profitability of one major TV taping for WWE grew from 2007. I didn't, I didn't go back further than that, but grew from that year on as WWE's TV rights value increased over that time. And, you know, whether it was in the old exclusive pay-per-view model or even in this now network model where the, the pay-per-views are still sold on pay-per-view, but are primarily consumed via the W network. I think the profitability for pay-per-views, for one average non-WrestleMania pay-per-view, I think the profitability, and again, I'm, I'm not considering ticket revenue, but the the profitability of one pay-per-view has been pretty consistent over this time, over these last 13 years or so. And if you look at the notebook, I've even projected this a couple of years out into the future where we know that WWE's TV rights compensation is going to continue to grow because of the guaranteed escalating nature of WWE's TV rights payments. But this lines up with what I've estimated in the past when you know, people ask the question, we look into the subject of, you know, is the WWE Network more profitable than pay-per-view? And the answer is, WWE Network is more profitable, a little bit more profitable than pay-per-view, but it has not yet recovered the value of the opportunity cost that it cost to to transform from pay-per-view to streaming. And I would argue that executing the network at the time that they did you know, greatly negatively impacted their TV rights. But anyway, the, the network is more expensive. There are huge startup costs and and substantial ongoing costs. But as a result of getting $10 a month from... Over one and a half million subscribers, WWE gets a lot more revenue from the W network than WWE was getting from pay per view. But there's also more expense associated with operating the network. So, anyway, WWE network probably a little bit more profitable than pay per view at this point in an isolated per year basis. Again, not having recovered the initial startup costs plus all the impacted revenue streams but on an isolated basis, probably a little bit more profitable. So when we take into account the annual profitability of the WWE network, we have to attribute some value to the non-pay-per-view content, you know, uh, especially the takeovers, the library, I guess, and whatever else is on there. I don't think there's a ton of value in the other stuff like NXT UK, 205 Live, not all the documentary uh, stuff that they do. Yeah, there's some value in the other content, so I just assumed, I attributed how much? About 85% of the value of the entire network to the pay-per-views. So I won't bore you with reading through numbers, but if you want to look at the whole table and look at the, the entire estimate and understand it or challenge it, you can see that in the notebook. But I want to play another clip from the Tony Khan media call from last Tuesday, this week Tuesday. Where he's he's being asked about whether he wants to bring uh, pro wrestling into a more mainstream or bring it into having more respect with the general public, and uh, he kind of says yes, but then he he gets into talking about how a company called Activist Artists Management uh, played a role in helping AEW get a TV deal with TNT.
1: Yeah, that's I mean that's definitely how there became an AEW. I think for years people wanted. Uh you know, to bring pro wrestling back to major cable television, other than the one company that had shows on major cable television. And, uh, you know, we provided that alternative and more so than an alternative, we provided, you know, mainstream wrestling solution for people, uh, not just, uh, older people either. I mean, we have this really young audience that's the youngest big audience in wrestling. Uh, and week to week, uh, there are all these viewing figures that have our network doing backflips. So, Uh, that is all possible because of the National Football League and the Premier League and because of my dad. Uh, He put me in this position to work in these leagues and uh, then some dumb luck. Uh, I made really uh, awesome, talented, powerful friends in Hollywood over the years, and I was in a position to make those friends again because of my dad's connections in the NFL and the Premier League, and that's why people would probably take me seriously. Uh, But some of it just comes down to dumb luck. I mean, Bernie, my, my friend and partner, uh, in activist artist management uh, we became friends sitting next to each other on a flight from Dallas to Los Angeles uh, five oh, almost six years ago and uh, it was a very random happening and stayed in touch and then uh, became really good friends and uh, then became business partners together and uh, he introduced me to Kevin Riley who's uh, you know been the president of TNT and TBS and uh, Kevin uh, opened the door for us to have this this opportunity, and then we built a relationship with uh, Brett White's, the general manager of TNT, Sam Linsky, the executive vice president of TNT and TBS, and uh, they've been really, really generous to us. And uh, we're expanding this relationship, growing it. It's a long term plan, and bringing wrestling back to TNT is really important to me.
0: So that's a level of depth that I hadn't previously heard before. Uh, Tony Khan is referring there. To Bernie Cahill, who is the, uh, a founder, I don't know if he's the founder, but he's at least one of the founders of Activist Artists Management. On the company's website, uh, Cahill's profile, uh, part of it reads that Cahill advises Tony Khan on All Elite Wrestling and was instrumental in securing 400 hours of primetime programming for AEW on TNT running through 2024. In addition, Cahill advises all non-sports-related programming for the Jacksonville Jaguars' Daly's Place and Fulham FC's Craven Cottage. So it sounds like m- maybe this is the the CAA or the uh, Nick Khan. You know what CAA and Nick have been to WWE. Maybe activist artist management and Bernie Cahill have been to AEW. Uh, if you're catching up, Nick Khan is the. New president and chief revenue officer for WWE who also, before he was hired by WWE this year, negotiated WWE's TV deals in 2018. But who else is Tony Khan referring to in that clip? He's referring to Kevin Riley, who is now the former president of TBS and TNT. He just left that position this year, but he was in that position when AEW signed on with Turner. But he's referring to two other people there uh, who are current employees with Turner, with TBS and TNT, Brett White, who's the general manager for TBS and TNT, and Sam Linsky, who's the senior vice president of original programming for TNT, TBS, and True TV. So, so maybe these are the, the executives that AEW is dealing with and working with closely now that Kevin Riley is out of the picture. but So it sounds like Bernie Hill is somebody that Tony Khan had a friendship with after meeting him on a flight from Dallas to LA years ago, 6 years ago he says. And it sounds like then he, uh, Tony Khan met Kevin Riley through Bernie Cahill. It sounds like Bernie Cahill had probably already been doing deals for the Jaguars and for Fulham FC. And then through Cahill, Tony Khan, it sounds like met Kevin Riley, probably they became friends well before AEW. And then when Tony Khan decided to start a wrestling company, he had that connection with Kevin Riley to presumably begin to talk about a major TV deal. So if I'm putting the pieces together correctly there, it gives a lot of uh, interesting insight into how, how AEW, and more importantly, how a TV deal for AEW came to be. And who the key executives at Turner are now that AEW is dealing with. And by the way, this makes me think of, you know, what's happening with probably the number three wrestling company in the world, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and I wonder if they have any sort of relationship with a company like Active Artist Management or CAA, Creative Artist Agency, I think that's what it stands for, uh, which is where NickCon came from. I wonder if they have any sort of relationship with a company like that which could help them get a TV deal with the U.S. TV channel, which is something that they've not had since the beginning of this year, which has coincided, uh, in my estimation, with a decline in the popularity of New Japan in the U.S., a year where, granted, the, the, the pandemic hasn't helped, where New Japan was totally out of commission, didn't run any events uh, in the entire month of March through uh, the middle of July... But that decline in popularity was already happening in 2019 when AEW had taken Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks away from New Japan. And it looks to me like that decline in popularity is being compounded now, again, in the U.S. and, and perhaps in other English-speaking countries, too. That's being compounded by challenges from the pandemic, but really from the loss of any TV in the U.S., which they used to have, through access. And of course the story there is Access was purchased by Anthem, which is the parent company of Impact Wrestling. And it appears Impact Wrestling wanted a relationship, a working relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling. In exchange for basically not canceling New Japan Pro Wrestling, it appears that New Japan Pro Wrestling was not interested in a a working relationship with Impact, which it had in the past which would have been in conflict with its existing relationship with Ring of Honor, and therefore New Japan no longer airs on Axis. And it's not clear when or if New Japan will get a US TV deal ever again. And again, the one big thing that distinguishes New Japan Pro Wrestling from WWE or AEW and probably even Impact Wrestling is that those three... U.S.-based, or I guess maybe Canada-based companies, are media companies. They get the vast majority of their revenue from selling video in one form or another, whether that's a weekly TV show for a TV channel, or whether that's through pay-per-view, or whether that's through streaming. The biggest piece is coming from TV. But still, the majority of the revenue in non-pandemic times, the majority of the revenue for New Japan is coming from tickets. And New Japan has the problem of being in a really different time zone but but the growth opportunity for New Japan seems to be in growing the media revenues in selling the broadcast rights for its content throughout the world and especially in the US where media rights are so valuable. In other news <laughs> Kevin Dunn sold some W stock, executive vice president of WB, of global TV production. Kevin Dunn sold 30,000 W shares, disclosed in SEC filings on Wednesday. He sold 30,000 shares at an average per share value of $44.79, meaning that the proceeds of the sale were worth $1.3 million. Uh, this is normal. The news websites like to post about Kevin Dunn, if they can. Kevin Dunn, known to be an enabler of many of Vince McMahon's worst television habits, allegedly. But no, this stock sale is not a sign that uh, the company is about to go under. Uh, Kevin Dunn makes sales almost every year. He has sold tens of thousands of shares, sometimes hundreds of thousands of shares every year. For the last several years, and he is probably very wealthy as a result, not to mention the millions of dollars a year that he's been compensated uh, related to his employee salary and other compensation over the years. But yet, people uh, generally over amplify the importance of these stock sales, and I guess it's it's up to me to point out how, in fact, mundane they usually are. The only sales that were, that were really dramatic, I guess, were, were Vince's sales related to uh, getting funding to restart the XFL. I, I guess there are s- some stock sales that are, you can kind of read the tea leaves on. Maybe the one in, in 2019 by Patricia, Patricia Gottsman, who is... Is she now a former member of the board of directors for WWE? Yeah, she's not listed as a member of the board of directors anymore. On the corporate website. She, she appears to be a former member of the board of directors. She made some sales after not having made sales while being a member of the board for many, many years. So it, it looked like it was something that was not in the pattern of her uh, shareholder behavior. But anyway, we don't usually get a great deal of detail for the reasoning for the stock sales that happen. And they may, may just have to do with certain financial planning decisions that a given shareholder makes, with the exception of when it's Enormous uh, selling of shares in the case of when Vince sold millions of shares to fund the XFL. But especially these things get uh, misunderstood, sometimes blown out of proportion when recognizable names like Kevin Dunn, Paul Levesque, Stephanie McMahon make sales. Less blown out of proportion when lesser known names that drive fewer clicks, like George Barrios and Michelle Wilson, who have sold Larger portions of shares in recent years, but haven't driven as much interest or impressions or ad revenue. But anyway, so also a revision to our update on the W shareholder lawsuit settlement that we discussed last week. I got a, a very helpful email from a listener and lawyer, Dan Carroll, and actually, I think listeners of our friends at The Torch. Uh, if you've listened to The Fix with Todd Martin this week, I think they got a similar email from Dan, who was a very experienced lawyer, pointing out, uh, among other things, that the type of insurance that covers WB and its officers and directors is not, uh, as I, I called it, errors and omissions insurance, but is actually directors and officers liability insurance. This type of insurance covers... Uh, People like Vince McMahon and other executives if they misspeak in a shareholder's meeting or an earner's earnings call or in some other kind of SEC disclosure. Errors and omissions insurance sounds like an altogether different type of insurance that covers lawyers, doctors, accountants, architects, engineers. I wonder if it would cover podcasters. Protecting them against uh, errors that they may make in their practices. And Dan points out that attorney fees are probably not a factor to WWE's deciding to settle the case and that the decision largely rests with the insurance carrier. Uh, He goes into a great deal of detail about why that would be the case. That will be in the notebook for people to read. Uh, He also points out in response to the 20-point analysis that I did on the independent contractor employee issue, in particular for WWE, that I was doing a general analysis And that, in fact, WWE is a Delaware company, which is certainly something I see uh, in the SEC filings. So Delaware law would apply to WWE, and Delaware law is very business friendly, which is why so many corporations are established in Delaware. And it's possible that the twenty-factor test might not be as favorable, or would be more favorable to WWE than the twenty-factor test would be in consideration of. Uh, the laws in states like California or New York. So thanks again to Dan for that helpful feedback. Uh, That is really one uh, interesting aspect since I've been doing Russellomics, uh, even uh, when I was doing it with Mookie, where we would have a lot of people who, uh, who have particular expertise in these relevant fields that we end up talking about here, whether it's lawyers or accountants. Yeah, it's great to hear from listeners in general. And, and to know that we're not just uh, speaking out into the void here. Uh, but it's, it's especially helpful when you've got you know, people who have real professional experience in a field that is relevant to uh, helping us understand the wrestling business. And you can always reach me through Twitter, Twitter DM or Brandon at WrestleNomics.com through email. And then from there, I was also asked, uh, I think this morning... By someone, considering the debut of Sting on AEW this past Wednesday, is there any evidence to suggest that Sting helped draw TV viewership for TNA when he joined TNA back in 2006? And uh, there's a graph for this in the notebook, uh, the entire history of TNA slash impact. I think I mentioned that earlier. But it does look like you, you, you at least can't rule it out that Sting was a draw on TV for TNA. You know, from 2006, he, he debuts on January 28th, 2006. Or at least that's his TV debut. I think he was on pay-per-view before that for TNA. But that's his debut on the weekly show. And from there, you do see three years of growth in ratings for Impact. Now, in that time, there was also the debut of Kurt Angle and numerous other factors that coincide. But I've I've plotted the 13-week moving average. I like the 13-week moving average because that's about one quarter of a year. But that 13-week moving average largely grows, really from the beginning of the run on Spike in October 2005. And then it peaks for the, what I like to call the Monday Night Skirmish on January 4th, 2010, with the debut of Hulk Hogan. And then the program mostly declines from there. And finally, some thoughts on the possibility of future live events, the future of live events for WWE. Will there be house shows? Will WWE have learned something from the, the forced experiments of the pandemic with the Thunderdome and with the Performance Center? Uh, I will say that I, I'm aware that uh, WWE Investor Relations uh, is telling people in the financial community that they believe that viewership will improve when live events return to their weekly shows. And WWE believes that the post-COVID expenses, so when WWE can get back to running Raw and SmackDown in arenas, they believe those expenses are going to be comparable to the expenses currently at the Thunderdome. So I could see WWE doing more of these Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday runs at the same venue for pay-per-view weeks which is something that we already saw on the major pay-per-view weekends like WrestleMania, SummerSlam, uh, Royal Rumble, even Survivor Series. But it seems like they could extend that to the remaining monthly pay-per-views, which would allow WWE to save a lot of money on production expenses by keeping the production in one venue for four consecutive days and not have to load in and load out, to just set it up once, run for four days, and then load it out. That would save greatly on production expenses. And four days, that would mean a SmackDown on Friday, maybe an NXT TakeOver on Saturday, or some other type of event. I guess it could be some other type of event, but I, I can't imagine that it would draw well as a, as a ticket item. But a TakeOver, and you could see the NXT takeovers being forced to 12 a year that way. But a SmackDown on Friday, another event, maybe a TakeOver on Saturday, a pay-per-view obviously on Sunday, and a Raw on Monday. But will the return of live audiences actually help WTV viewership? Um, I think Vince and others in the company believe that. Um, it's impossible, I think, for Vince to look inward. So there has to be an external reason why viewership hasn't fully recovered from where it was pre-pandemic. And now that we're here uh, in, into December, it's easy to tell yourself a narrative that, well, viewership was down in the summer because... Audiences were tired of, of the cold environment at the, at the Performance Center, and, and the Thunderdome did coincide with viewership stabilizing. So it was the Performance Center, it was the environment that caused the decline. You could tell yourself that story. But whether uh, live crowds help TV viewership will depend on whether it's an abrupt return, like zero, zero fans to, a, to thousands of fans right away in one night, or whether it's a gradual return. Maybe something along the lines of what we see right now in AEW with hundreds of fans, and then maybe eventually thousands of fans that just gradually grows. But whatever the case, there probably will be a short-term pop in interest. But I'm not optimistic that there are all these dormant TV viewers who are still waiting for the post-COVID times to get back into watching WWE at this point. But will we see the Thunderdome continue to exist in the post-COVID times, uh, I would be surprised. Uh, doing the Thunderdome right now as it is, and bringing Raw and SmackDown to different arenas every week, if, if that's even feasible, would be very expensive. And I expected Q3 production costs to be higher than they were because I didn't account for the $18 million in production incentives that usually come in in Q3. So production costs appear to be lower Because of those production incentives. Uh, I doubt the Thunderdome is quite as expensive as pre-COVID costs of running Raw and SmackDown. But it's definitely substantially more expensive than when they were running at the Performance Center. And maybe there's a a less expensive application of the Thunderdome. But I would be surprised if they continued with it post-COVID. What seating would it take out? And uh, it, it looks like it's covering... Uh, the high price floor seating right now so that in a sense is another additional expense and if you're not going to cover the high price seating that's on the floor then you're going to put the thunderdome i guess up in the arena i'm not not sure how that's feasible or if it's so far away anyway what's the point i don't know it's hard to imagine i I imagine they'll, they'll probably carry some of the production techniques over but the physical structure of the thunderdome itself probably not And I think psychologically I could see Vince for a minute being eager to return to have his showdown with a live audience, vocal minority, figuring that maybe he'll finally be able to manipulate them again now that he's had a year to reset without the vocal minority ruining his shows. He can have the showdown and see if he can finally get the intended reactions from a live audience. And then he'll try and won't be able to. And then he'll lose interest in that. But anyway, that's all I have for this week. There's more stuff about viewership in the notebook. Comparing Raw and SmackDown and, I think, NXT, yes, NXT and AEW to wider trends in television. Comparing SmackDown on an isolated basis and its various runs across networks and time slots. Showing that, spoiler alert, it did decline at a more aggressive rate than television overall. This notebook, by the way, is in this Google Doc that I've been composing it in. It's 25 pages. You can get access to it, patreon.com slash $5 subscribers, and above will get access. It's available right now. Other than that, you can follow rustlenomics, at rustlenomics, you can follow me, uh, I'm I'm Brandon Thurston. It's almost 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Call me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time.